Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. If you've been around JCBC for long, you know that we take pretty seriously our partnerships with missional partners, both locally and nationally and around the world. One of our valued missional partners is Water is Life Ethiopia. You know, for some years now, we've been partnering with Water's Life Ethiopia uh, to restore and reveal the God-given dignity given to uh, women in villages and remote areas. And, but mostly, uh, we've been doing work to, to help Ethiopians access clean, safe drinking water. There's about 113 million people in the nation of Ethiopia, and almost a third of that population has no access to clean, safe drinking water. And so they gather their water for all purposes from contaminated streams and rivers and ponds that they share with their animals, which leads to waterborne diseases, illnesses, shortens the lifespan. So our work, along with the work of many other churches and organizations in partnership with Water is Life Ethiopia, is to help them find access to the water that will save their lives. You know what the greatest irony of all is? That for most of them, everything they will ever need, all of the clean, fresh, life-giving water that they need to survive and thrive, most of the time is just a few meters beneath their feet. What they lack is not water. What they lack are the tools to access the water. There is nothing like being in a village when water breaks through the surface for the first time and in an instant, the future of an entire village is changed forever. I've been thinking about that a little bit this week. The reason I'm thinking about it is because it's a parable, really, for the spiritual life. The fact is, we all long for a life that is truly life. The one that Jesus talked about, the abundant life, the one that is full of grace and joy and beauty and meaning, a life in the kingdom in which, well, there is a steadiness of heart and a a stability of mind, a life that makes it worth waking up in the morning. We all want that. But do you know that everything you will ever need to access that life, you already have? It was given to you through Christ, who, as the New Testament promises, is the Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Jesus uh, is talking to this woman at the well. She's drawing up water to survive, and he has a conversation about accessing a different kind of water, finding a way to access that river of life that is within her, even as they speak. This is what Jesus said. If anyone drinks the living water I give them, they will never thirst again and will be forever satisfied. And then this line. For when you drink the water I give you, 
it becomes a gushing fountain of the Holy Spirit springing up and flooding you with endless life. Flooding you with endless life. How wonderful that would feel, right? To have access to a living river of water, of life that just gushes up and floods your soul. And the fact is we do. But like our sisters and brothers in Ethiopia, what we need is just beneath the surface. What we lack are sometimes the tools to help us access that which Christ has already given us. That's why we're having a brand new sermon series beginning right now that I'm calling Habits. Habits. For the next six weeks, we're talking about specific spiritual disciplines and practices or what I'm calling holy habits that we can put into practice every day that'll serve as a kind of toolbox or a a drilling rig that helps us excavate, drill down deep beneath the surface of the heart to that place where he abides with us and where we can eat and drink until we are satisfied and will never thirst anymore. And out of the next six weeks, we're going to talk about specific kinds of spiritual practices and holy habits that we can put into practice every day of our lives. But today, we talk about one. Today, I'm just going to call it the holy hush. Yeah. The spiritual discipline that I want to focus on for just the next few minutes One of the tools that will help us access that life-giving river that is eternal in Christ, I want to call the holy hush. So we live in a sound-saturated, screen-dominated, over-stimulated world. That's a mouthful, and I'm going to give it to you again. We live in a sound-saturated, screen-dominated, over-stimulated world. I mean, just think for just a moment about how many ways everyone who knows you has access to you at any given time, 24-7. I mean, there are notifications on social media, email, there's text messages, group me messages, every kind of app that can send a notification that will ring and ding and bing on your phone, causing you to be tugged, pulled in a thousand different directions. Not to mention, if you watch the news, it's not the day of Walter Cronkite anymore, Dan Rather, Ted Koppel, where you got like this person on the screen talking to you. It's the person or a panel of persons now with 14 banners up and down the sides and along the top and bottom. Well, here's what the Dow is doing today, and here's breaking news. And funny how everything is breaking news, right? And in the midst of it all, here's the trouble. It's changing our brains. It's impacting the way that we do and view everything in life. I was reading an article not long ago about the power of dopamine in our brain. So dopamine is this, is this neurotransmitter in, in our brain that is responsible for triggering the pleasure centers of our brain. 
So a surge of dopamine is what triggers happiness and sadness, and it, it triggers a sense of pleasure and contentment, and, and it causes you to feel a sense of surge or a kind of a buzz. It's all based on what is stimulating you. So whenever you get a text message, there's a little bit of dopamine that begins to surge through your brain. If you get a notification and you look on your phone and there's those red circles with three, four, five unread messages, right? It begins to create a surge of dopamine and the dopamine then gives you a kind of adrenaline because, well, this stimulation means that I'm alive. But then this overstimulated, screen-dominated, super-saturated world is having a negative impact. And do you know why? Because as much as we crave dopamine, as much as we crave staying on this kind of constant high of being stimulated and entertained and occupied, the trouble is with dopamine, it can't keep up with the natural ebb and flow of hormones. And over time, do you know that we actually end up needing more dopamine to maintain the same level of satisfaction? So we go and look for more stimuli. We go look for more entertainment, more ways to trigger that pleasure center in our brain. And I was reading this article, and, and you know what occurred to me? <laughs> I'm, I'm reading this article about how we are addicted to dopamine. We're addicted to pleasure centers, addicted to stimulation, right? But I'm reading this article on my computer while I'm binge-watching Netflix and scrolling through Instagram and Twitter and, and Facebook and TikTok and I'm replying to text messages and watching emails and the, all the while cramming lime-flavored Tostito chips down my throat. I mean, my, my dopamine is an overload and it occurs to me, we are. We are an addicted culture, addicted to stimulation, addicted to entertainment, we are a sound-saturated, screen-dominated, overstimulated world. But the problem is not just physical. It's not just that it takes more and more dopamine to maintain the same levels of satisfaction. The problem is spiritual. It, it's a spiritual problem because we are learning to depend on external stimuli in order to have an internal contentment. Yeah. So the Old Testament prophet uh, Jeremiah said something about this way before we knew anything about dopamine. <laughs> this is what he said. God, speaking through Jeremiah, says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So the image is a village or town where they would keep their water supply in a carved out cistern, a clay cistern, or maybe it was stone and it was hewn out of the stone, but under years of direct sunlight, it began to crack. And the water then in these cracked, leaky cisterns would all rush out except for a few little puddles at the bottom of the leaky cisterns where bacteria would remain and slime and sludge and filth would collect. And the image that God is painting is you would rather drink from the, the leaky cisterns. You would rather bypass me, the fountain of living water, 
and instead be satisfied by the bacteria-filled sludge of leaky cisterns. And while you and I may not know much about leaky cisterns, we do know what it's like to try to find a kind of soul satisfaction from sources that simply cannot satisfy the soul. You see, there is something beneath the surface that if we could just access it, if we just had the tools to drill down beneath the layers and layers of oh, woundedness and injury and neglect and, and, and brokenness and division and rebellion and sin, if we could just drill down beneath what keeps us from it, it would gush up like a, like a fountain of eternal life. So that's why we need a holy Hush, to hush the supersaturated, screen-dominated, overstimulated world in which we live. Now, the ancient discipline that's associated with this holy hush that I'm talking about is the ancient spiritual discipline that's been tested throughout the ages by ancestors, mothers and fathers in the faith who have come before, and it's called solitude. Yeah, solitude. Now, the textbook definition of solitude is really simple. It means simply, solitude is simply the state of being alone. The state of being alone. But when I'm talking about the spiritual discipline of solitude, it's more than that. It's more than just being alone. You know, it's not, it's, solitude is not simply the absence of noise, but it's the presence of a voice. It's not simply the absence of company but it's the, it's the presence of one whose company matters more than any. So Richard Foster, the great writer and spiritual director and theologian, he defines solitude in a specific way. And I want to use his definition as a springboard. Listen to what he says. He says, solitude is the creation of an open, empty space in our lives by purposefully abstaining from interaction with other human beings so that freed from competing loyalties, we can be found by God. It's that last line that really gets me. So that freed by competing loyalties, we can be found by God. Well, now you know God can find us anywhere. God can find us like a, like a sheep who's gone astray. He's the one who leaves the 99 to find the one, right? But the truth is, sometimes we have to create an open space where we withdraw from competing loyalties, not simply so God can find us, but so that we can be aware of God's pursuit to find us. Yeah, It's not a lack of living water that's within us. It's, it's the lack of a tool to access it. Yeah. You know, that thought, however, really scares some people. The thought of being alone, solitude, withdrawing from other people. The thought of being alone with our thoughts, with no sound, no sight, no company, no others around, just alone with myself, can sometimes, it can, it can really scare us enough to where we end up seeking more noise. That's why we, 
we run from solitude. We run from solitude and we're in this overstimulated world because we seek stimulation in order to avoid the thing we're afraid of. Uh, have you ever heard of an anechoic chamber? An anechoic chamber means without echo, an echoic chamber is a room that is completely without sound. I mean, it's so padded with technology that they have removed every kind of electromagnetic or sound wave possible. It is completely absorbed into the room where you cannot hear a single sound until you get in the room and shut the door and turn the lights out. And when you do that, some strange things begin to happen. Most people can't stay in an anechoic chamber for very long just a few minutes because as you're in this chamber this totally quiet soundless room you begin to hear the sound of your heartbeat you can hear the blood flowing through your arteries you can hear the expansion of your lungs and the movement of your bones against cartilage and it's really freaky in fact, most people can't stay in there more than just a few minutes. But if you stay in there longer than, say, 30 minutes or over an hour, people have actually lost their minds. You begin to hallucinate. And people are on video. You can go and watch this right now on YouTube. People are on video beginning to hallucinate, and they begin to hear sounds that are not there. And in the emptiness, in the absence of all external noises, there are all these other internal noises that drive them crazy. See, we're afraid to be alone. Not because we're afraid of shutting out outside noises, but we're afraid of what we might hear when we are. So Evagrius Ponticus was a 4th century monk one of the desert fathers. He's the one, by the way, who we attribute the seven deadly sins to. Well, he left the big city and went to the desert in order to avoid all the trappings and the temptations of the big city. He believed that many Christians were beginning to sell out to politics and to power and to money, and so he moved into the, into the desert. But what he found in the desert was that all of the same temptations that he was trying to avoid by leaving the city, he found in the desert because they came from within. See, some of us are afraid of disciplines like solitude because we can't stand the thought of being alone. Because if we are alone, then we're left to deal with some things that are not outside, not outside noises, but interior noises that we've never dealt with. Yeah. So there was another experiment at the University of Virginia. They had these people hooked up to these electrodes and, and they, they sent electric shock to them, just experiments, and it was very painful. And the subjects reported that they were so painful, these shocks, that they were willing to pay money for the shocks to stop. It's that serious. So phase two of the project was they sent each of these individuals in a room by themselves for only 15 minutes. Now, it wasn't an anechoic chamber, but it was just a regular room. In each room, 15 minutes, but they put in their hands an electric shock button hooked up to themselves. And do you know 
that by the time 15 minutes was up, two-thirds of the men and one-quarter of the women in the experiment ended up shocking themselves several times because the fear of the sheer absence of sound and stimulation, the fear of having no dopamine surge through our brain, the fear of being totally alone causes some of us to prefer pain over transformation. See, that's the problem with a misunderstanding of solitude. Solitude is the capacity for us to create some space to be found by God. Are you kidding me? To drill down and access the fountain of living water. But see, solitude is not simply the absence of something. Solitude is not just an absence. Solitude is a presence. It's not just the absence of sound, but the presence of a voice. It's not just the absence of company, but the presence of one whose company is really the only one that matters in the end. Here's the irony about solitude. You can be totally alone and, and know nothing about solitude. Totally not experience solitude because of the competing voices in your mind that are never, ever hushed. You can be alone and not know what solitude is. But you can be in a crowd and you could be surrounded by chaos on all sides and know what it means to have an interior solitude, an inner sanctuary where you are safe and content and you abide with the one who knows you best and loves you most. So Viktor Frankl is the, the, the well-known or was the well-known Holocaust survivor. He he was at Auschwitz uh, during Nazi Germany. And he survived and, and became a, a, an amazing writer, speaker, and inspiration to many. And he spoke about the need for solitude and how he came to depend on solitude while surviving in Auschwitz. And this is what he said. He said, there were times, of course, when it was possible and even necessary to keep away from the crowd. The prisoner craved to be alone with himself and with his thoughts. He yearned for privacy and he yearned for solitude. After my transportation to a so-called rest camp, I had the rare fortune to find solitude for about five minutes here and there at a time behind the earthen hut where I worked in which there were crowded about 50 delirious patients. There was a quiet spot in a corner of a double fence of barbed wire surrounding the camp. A tent had been improvised there with a few poles and branches from trees in order to shelter about a half dozen corpses, which was about the daily rate at that camp. There was also a shaft leading to the water pipes. I squatted on the wooden lid of that shaft. When, whenever my services were not needed, I just sat and looked out in the green flowering slopes in the distant blue hills of the Bavarian landscape, framed by the meshes of barbed wire. I dreamed longingly, and my thoughts wandered north and northeast in the direction of my home, 
but I could see only clouds. <laughs> Yet the, the corpse is near me, crawling with lice, didn't even bother me in my solitude. Only the steps of passing guards could arouse me from my dreams. <laughs> you see, it is entirely possible to be surrounded by crowds and chaos and for all around you, all hell to be breaking loose, and yet you still are able to find a solitude of the heart where you are known and where you know. In the 16th century, uh, Matthias Grunwald painted an amazing altarpiece that, that he called uh, the, uh, the Temptation of St. Anthony. Now, St. Anthony was a 3rd century monk, an ascetic. He was another desert father, kind of like Evagrius, but earlier who moved out to the desert. He was one of the first who left the city center to avoid selling out his identity in Christ. He, he moved out to practice disciplines, and one of them was solitude. He was a master of solitude, able to, to abide in this space with Christ, undeterred by what tugged away at him. Well, in the 16th century rendering, this painting, I want you to take a look. It depicts uh, St. Anthony, Take a look here. St. Anthony there, of course, is being vexed, tormented by, of course, in the 16th mind, all the, the demonic powers and forces and spirits tugging him here and there. But one look a little closer, and, and, and I want you to, to tell me, is that not what it feels like these days for social media and meetings and obligations and work schedules and the kids and to be tugging in every direction, temptations at every turn? But if you look closely at a detail of his face, an even closer look reveals St. <laughs> Anthony, tugged on all sides, tormented at every direction, yet smiling, grinning in the midst of chaos. And why? Because it's possible. It's possible if, if we create some space, deliberate space in our lives to to push away all competing loyalties, it is possible in that safe space of solitude to be found by God. This is what Jesus did. Everywhere we turn in the Gospels, every Gospel reports the same kind of behavior from Jesus. Jesus modeled this behavior for all the saints who later would echo it, and, and, and even you and for me who are trying to practice these holy habits that keep us tapped into the river of life. It was Jesus who modeled it first. And Jesus, 40, 40 days or before he started his wilderness uh, or his public ministry, Jesus spent 40 days in solitude in the wilderness before he launched his public ministry. In addition to that, Jesus also, before he picked his 12 disciples, he spent uh, the night alone in the desert hills, according to Luke chapter 6. After John the Baptist, his cousin, was beheaded and the announcement was given to Jesus, he withdrew, as the text says, to a lonely place. In Matthew's Gospel, we read after feeding the 5,000 that he went to the hills by himself. 
In Mark chapter 1, we see that after a long night of work, early in the morning, he went to a lonely place. I love that. And then when the twelve who he had sent out on this mission to preach and to heal, when they had come home, he says to them, from his own practices, come away by yourselves. In Luke's gospel, we hear that uh, after he had healed the leper, leper he, he retreated to the wilderness to pray. On a lonely mountain, he took three of his disciples on the mountain that we would call the Mount of Transfiguration to experience the solitude of that lonely mountain. And then, of course, on the last night of his life, before he gave his life up as a sacrifice for you and for me, he spent a long night alone in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed with sweat drops of blood. Everywhere we look, Jesus was pulling away, creating some space from others in order to commune with the only one who mattered. So the third century theologian Origen was reflecting upon this practice that Jesus had of solitude and prayer and reflecting on the reality that sometimes you and I think we don't need it or we think that we don't have time to practice it. We can't fit it into our busy schedules. And Origen had these words to say, if it was so necessary for the unique Son of God to pray in solitude, who are we? To neglect the same. See, my sisters and brothers, this is what I'm trying to say. There is a power in solitude. A power in deliberately moving away from all the stimulation, all the company, all the conversations, all the ways in which we are needed by the world in order to abide with the only one who knows how to truly find us. In many ways, I like to think of it like this. When you, when you practice solitude, you're creating an interior sanctuary. A sanctuary where you can always abide and hear the voice of God. Elijah, in solitude, discovered something that it sometimes takes us a long time to discover. He looked for God in the whirlwind and in the fire and, and in, in the, the earth shake, the earthquake. And in all those places where he would expect to hear the voice of God or, or experience the presence of God, he experienced the presence in none of those. But we're told in the Hebrew text that it was in the sound of sheer silence. When all the world had hushed, that he heard a still, small voice. See, when we practice solitude, there is a strength because it allows us to enter into a sanctuary, a safe place where we no longer need the external props that hold up our lives and, and somehow convince us that we're going to be okay until we're not. In the sanctuary, we realize we don't need the props and that we are okay and will be okay because we're held up by something we don't create. See, if you're driven by image, for example, practicing solitude allows you to do as 2 Corinthians tells us, to abide and gaze at his face and he gaze at you until from one degree of glory to the next you are gradually transformed into his own image, the image that he had in mind when he created you. That happens in solitude, not in crowds, 
Not in sermons, not in big anthems or songs. It can happen in those places, but where it happens the most purest is when there is no one but you and the one who made you. Or if you're not driven by image, maybe you're driven by a fear that follows you around and makes you make bad decisions and decisions you should have never considered because you're afraid. Well, in solitude, we get to hear the New Testament promise that I did not give you a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And if you're driven around by anger, just anger, like a low-grade anger or a seething kind of anger at just the way things are in the world or the way that your life has unfolded, well, then in solitude, we're able to be in the company of the one who can assuage our anger because he, he absorbed it all in the cross. You see, it's in solitude that we're able to, to allow the Spirit of Christ to dismantle every false version of our lives so that when we leave solitude, we re-enter into the world more forged into his own image. When Henry Nouwen was talking about solitude, the strength of it, the power of it, this is what he said. Solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society. Ain't that the truth? And we continue to be entangled in the illusions of the false self. It's only when we pull away, when we create space, when we drill down beneath the surface to abide in the place where it's only you and the one who made you. It's only then that we are unentangled from the trappings of the false self. Yeah. So, how do we do it? Well, first, I, I want to first encourage you to do it. What's the secret of solitude? The secret of solitude is just to practice solitude. How do you start solitude? By starting solitude, by breaking away. And I can just, I can tell you this much. Personal experience, when I am not practicing solitude, when your pastor does not practice a daily rhythm of alone time with God, well, then that's when I begin to get anxious and paranoid and, and moody, and I begin to make decisions based on what I think is right rather than what the Spirit guides me to do, right? Is that the case with you? So when I'm not practicing solitude, I'm a mess. But when I am, I'm unflappable. I'm fearless, and, and it's not because of me, but because I've been in the company of the one who is my defender. I, I live out what, what Richard Rohr describes as the undefended life. Why? Because I've been for a little while in the company of the one who defends me. Solitude is the, the drilling rig that allows us to access the river of life that is waiting so how do you do it, though? Let me give you a couple of practical ways to think about this in getting started. I want you, and I told you this, the title of this sermon is, is, called, um, is called Holy Hush. So I want you to think of the word hush. H-U-S-H. -S hush. There are four things that you can do right now to begin the practice of solitude. Here's the first. Hew out time in your day for solitude. 
Now, why do I use the word hew? Because to hew something like out of rock takes work. You got to carve it. You got to put your elbow into it. You got to lean into it. It takes work. It's not easy. You have to hew out of your day the time to spend with God. Every day there should be sometime, somewhere when you are with the one who made you and with no one else. You say, well, I got a pretty busy schedule. I know. Get up earlier. Are you kidding? I get up at 3.30 in the morning already. How am I supposed to get up any earlier? Okay, maybe you not get up earlier. But is there a time in the day when you can carve out at lunch or at night before you go to bed for three minutes, walk outside? Yeah, I know it's cold. But to hew out of the remnant of that day, a moment when you look up at a part of the sky that's unpolluted by light and simply breathe. Breathe in the awareness that you are not alone, you have not been alone, you will never be alone. Hew out some time. Is it possible for you to think about one time a year taking a silent retreat? Yeah. You can take a silent retreat once a year, once, twice, three, four times a year. Currently, my 21 goals, my 21, 20, 21 goals, includes four 24-hour silent retreat. So one time per quarter, I'm getting away and speaking to no one, turning the phone off, and simply carving out a time when I have no competing loyalties and can be found again by God. Hew out of your day, time. But the next step in solitude or practicing solitude is use use the solitude you already have you're like what are you talking about what solitude do i already have i mean i'm raising kids i'm getting them up early off to school and then i gotta go to work then i get home and start things all over just to prep for the next day what are you talking about the solitude i already have i know i know but follow me on this there is a time every morning when you wake up when you become awake but before your feet hit the floor maybe it's two minutes three minutes could you prop yourself up on the pillow and for only two or three minutes practice deliberate solitude? You're like, well, I'll fall back to sleep. Yeah, so there's that. Don't fall back asleep. But you know, the ancients used to say that going to sleep at night is like a mini death and waking up in the morning is like a mini resurrection. Is it possible for you in the mornings when you wake for those two or three minutes to imagine that you're waking up into resurrection. And just as the God who gave you your first breath woke you up that morning, can you breathe a few first breaths of this brand new day? Well, that's solitude. Or what about your shower? For some people, the shower may be your only solitude through the day. Is it possible that you begin to think now as you shower about the cleansing of the mind and the cleansing of the heart? Or how about your first cup of coffee? Is it possible for you to think about waking up in the morning and not checking your phone until after you've gotten your shower, gotten dressed, brushed your teeth, and you're sitting down with your first cup of coffee? Is it possible to practice all those normal routines, but this time, without music, without news, without checking the text messages that came in overnight. Because that is using the solitude you already have. Do you have a commute to work? Do you sit in traffic? How about instead of trying to numb that time with surges of dopamine, listening to the radio or music or a podcast, maybe you turn everything off and just 
be awake and aware. So use the solitude you already have. Hew out of your day some time and use the solitude you already have. But the third step is this. The third step, set a space for solitude. You know, a lot of the houses around here, we've got like, you know, 47 rooms in our houses, right? (laughs) And is it possible that one of them becomes the room where you pray and you read and you practice solitude? Or maybe not a room, but I know of some people who have a prayer chair. And that's the chair that I sit in when I'm alone and silent and in the company of God. And maybe everyone in the, in the family knows that if you're in that room or in that chair to leave you alone for just five minutes because you're trying to create a little space and withdraw from competing loyalties. So set a space so that you know this is sacred space and sacred time and stick to it rigidly. So hew out of your day some time. Use the solitude that's already embedded in your day, but now more deliberately set a space for solitude. But finally, have patience with yourself in solitude. Yeah, I told you earlier that the best way to start solitude is just to start solitude, to break away, to do it as clumsily and as imperfectly as possible. Because the truth is, none of us, practice this discipline perfectly and our minds are polluted with all kinds of competing loyalties i know but don't beat yourself up about it truth is thomas merton said you know lord i know that i don't always please you but i can't help but believe that my desire to please you pleases you your desire to have solitude with the one who knows you best and loves you most is enough the practice comes in time Now, it's been said, Richard Foster calls uh, solitude a container discipline. I love that phrase, a container discipline. And here's why. Because solitude is like a container that you can practice all the other disciplines in. I mean, you could pray during times of solitude. You can read scripture during times of solitude. You can journal. You can meditate. You can contemplate. You can do all kinds. And we're going to talk about all those disciplines in the coming weeks and, and days ahead. But it's a container discipline, so it doesn't matter what you do at first. It just matters that you do. Now, what we've been saying here today is that creating solitude is the building of an interior sanctuary, a heart sanctum, an inner sanctum in the heart that you always have access to. But maybe you're hearing this, and I hope that you begin practicing that this week. Look this week for our publications and our communications because I'm going to be making references or recommendations on things to read, websites to visit on how to deepen your spiritual walk through the practice of solitude. But maybe you're hearing all this, and it sounds really great to you, but you realize that you've never taken the first step, which is to yield your life to the one who is actually looking for you. And if if that's where you are today, I, I simply want to offer this prayer for you right where you are, doing whatever it is that you're doing, I want you to just simply pray these words. God, I I do so desperately want to drink from that fountain of living water that the pastor says I have access to. That that, that it only takes um, drilling down beneath the surface of my heart. And so here I am. I confess to you that 
that I have trouble accessing it because I've put layers of sin and rebellion and division and trouble and all of my woundedness and all of my woundingness has caused me to somehow be blind to the reality that you want to feed me and give me drink. But I ask that you forgive me. I ask that you would help me to drill down beneath the surface of my heart so that I might find you finding me. And I pray that in all sincerity, in Christ's name, amen. So if you prayed that just now, understand that Christ, who is in you, the hope of glory, heard that cry. And you have begun the first step of the most important journey of your life. And what, I want to know about that. You need to tell somebody about that prayer. And, and if you can't tell somebody there in your home or who's near you, I want you to email me. And let me know that you prayed that prayer so that we can come alongside you and lift you up as you begin your own spiritual journey with Jesus. Now, wherever it is that you go from this place, from this moment of worship, wherever you are in your homes, I pray that Christ would go before you to prepare your way. That Christ would go behind you on the days that you fear and feel like retreating to encourage you one step further at a time. May Christ go to your right and Christ to your left, abiding closer than even a sister or a brother. May Christ go above you on the days when dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds, see, who at the end of the day has the final word. May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. Mostly may Christ go in you, transforming you from the inside out until your heart beats in rhythm with his.